This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Judy Southworth looks at the tough voyage experienced by European immigrants to Dunedin in the 1870s. Gregor Campbell reports on a three waters problem in early Mornington, and we examine the history of Dunedin's Leviathan Hotel. This month, the local Polish community have been celebrating 150 years of Polish people in Dunedin. It reminded us of a story we ran a few years back about the rigours of voyaging here in the 1870s by Poles and other Europeans. We thought it was worth running again. This report from Judy Southworth. As you turn off the main south road at the airport sign near Allenton, you approach a bridge over the Tyree River. On the left, just before the bridge, is a cemetery. There lie a small number of early Polish immigrants. In the 19th century, conditions were hard in Poland, which was ruled by Prussia, Russia and Austria. Hoping for a better life, many Poles took up the offer of free immigration to New Zealand. Premier Vogel's public works extension of the 1870s offered free passage to immigrants willing to work on schemes that required little English, felling bush, draining swamps and building railway tracks. Most of the Polish settlers in Otago worked on the section of railroad from East Tyree through Allenton, then called Greytown, to Waihola. The ship Palmerston sailed from Hamburg in July 1872, carrying Germans, Poles, Danes and other Scandinavians, altogether about 300 passengers. They arrived in Dunedin in December, five months later. A Danish steerage passenger, Christen Christensen, kept a shipboard diary. He was 36 years old, travelling with his wife Margareta and their four children. The diary provides an example of fraudulent behaviour by the captain, disease and death. Here are excerpts from the diary. August 1st. Entered into North Sea in heavy storm. Nearly everybody seasick. On 4th, a little child died. August 10. Bad behaviour of two German girls who went to bed in the evening with two of the ship's sailormen. It came before the captain who went to the sailor's quarters with a whip in his hand and laid it pretty heavy on the cohibitors in bed and the unlucky poor girls had to leave the sailor's sweet company with the only garment of a nightdress and had to wait for their clothing till late next morning. August 26th. We have sailed one month and have a steady eastern wind. One man dead today belonging to Norway. He was a widower and had four children. A rumor was circulated that the man had been stealing a bottle of poison from some person on board so as to poison himself. But that was not so. That was to hide the real fact. One of the stewards on board had to attend to the fumigation. The steward brought down two or three buckets of tar and placed them on a grating and lit a coal fire to bring the contents to boil for about an hour. But the steward had overlooked seeing that all people were out and they were not because this Norwegian was still in his bed sleeping. Afterwards, when the people went down again, they discovered the man dead in his bed. No doubt from the strong poisonous fumes from the boiling tar. 
27th of August. My lovely little daughter, Annabelle, died at 11 p.m. after five weeks' illness. She was one year, eight months, and 15 days old. 16th of September. A Norwegian girl gave birth to a stillborn child. Our water tanks are almost empty. A good dose of vinegar was put down into the water to take the bad taste of rust. For all that, it was a horrible drink. It made even the coffee or tea taste rotten. 18th of September. My wife has born us a daughter at half past 11 last night. 1st of November. A son is born to a Swedish woman. My son has been laid up in hospital for eight days, suffering from scarlet fever, but will soon be well again. 3rd of November. My son is out of hospital. A Polish woman has born a female child. 13th of November. A one and a half year old Polish boy died today. By today, 17 children have been born and 15 have died. This from 300 passengers. 5th of December. Great joy on board as we can see New Zealand. A steamer is in sight, which will take our ship to Port Chalmers Harbour. There is a beautiful forest on both sides of the harbour where the birds are singing. Cattle are on grass amongst the trees. We have received provisions from Dunedin consisting of fresh white bread, fresh milk, bacon, vegetables and good fresh water. The Danes Journal was read by Steen Beck. Here, Paul Klemich, a descendant of this early group, tells of the conditions of these immigrants and the facilities they built in the Anerton area, which was called Greytown at the time. The summer of 1873 saw the largest contingent of Polish settlers arrive in Otago. Most were to work on the main trunk railway, which was being set up southward along the eastern side of the Tauri Plains. Packed in wagons, the convoy made their way via the old south road, which followed the original Māori foot track. Supplied with canvas and wooden frames, they eagerly constructed their temporary abodes. The settlement was first formed on land between Scroggs Creek Landing, the name given to Allenton area by early European settlers, Scrog being a member of the Kettle Survey Team in the main road. By now there was a school which occupied the old Thistleton, a Presbyterian church, a hotel and smithy, a blacksmith's workshop. By early 1873, six families had moved south to Waihola, being thought better for wood and water supplies. By late 1873, bridges were being erected across the Tyree at various places. Prior to the railway tracks being laid, the area had to be drained. The men worked in waist-deep water. Much of the material for building the railway was supplied by nearby woodland or brought up the river, and ballast was supplied by nearby quarries. By early 1874, sleepers and rails were set out along the line ready for placement. The newly established township was growing. A few of the new inhabitants were the new immigrants. By late 1874, more Poles arrived, and as the railway contract was drawing to a close, some remained in the area and erected more substantial housing of sod or wood, while some left to follow the railway construction south. Some went elsewhere, Pine Hill, the Waikaka Valley, Mosgul and Marshlands and Christchurch. By 1876 there was a Bank of New Zealand, a post office and general store. The Poles and non-Poles were reported to be getting along well together and helping one another out as necessary. 
the 1880s saw a further influx of Polish immigrants. After the completion of the railway work in the area, many migrants found employment on surrounding farms. The first of their homes of Daub and Wattle, uh, large blocks of a mixture of clay and straw or rushes dried in the sun, had two rooms with a large open fire and a clay chimney. The floors were clay. Windows were small as imported glass was expensive. Most had thatched roofs, but later corrugated iron was used and so water could be collected. Baking in camp ovens was the main cooking method and water was boiled in black cast iron kettles or billies. Washing was done outdoors over open fires in four-gallon kerosene tins. The water sources were wells. There were at least five in the township, or the river. Furniture was mostly homemade or of rough sawn timber. Cool stores were used to hold fruit, homemade cheese, butter and bottled drinks. Families owned at least a cow, a pig and beehives and grew vegetables. The Poles celebrated feast days, fast days and saints days when honey cakes would be baked and they danced and sang to the music of concertinas and mouth organs. Some played the piano. At Christmas and Easter, houses were decorated with ferns. The women sewed and made lace. On weeknights, most men met up at the smithy opposite the hotel and some were hard drinkers with fights often breaking out at weddings, funerals and baptism celebrations. In 1897, a butcher shop opened on the main south road with a slaughterhouse in a gully behind. They delivered to homes twice weekly through the Tyree Plain. Later, a bakery was set up on the main south road. The Crescent Hotel with stables was built in 1886 across the railway station. A public hall was erected by voluntary labour with materials purchased with money raised at fairs and from local produce sales. This was a venue for dances, concerts and occasional movies. A name changed was discussed as it was thought that with a grey town in the North Island there would be some confusion. The Māori name for the area was Waipautika, but Allenton was settled on, a Mr Allen having employed many residents of the area. By 1905 Allenton had a post and telegraph office, railway station, public school, three churches, Catholic, Presbyterian and Anglican, library and several private boarding houses and a first-class hotel. Mail was handled at the railway station which later operated a branch of the post office savings bank. Eventually the service was moved to Roxburgh store when the first telephone was installed there. Electricity arrived in the area in the mid-1920s. As time moved on, so did the poles. The small graveyard at Allenton is a poignant reminder of those who came across the world to help develop the Tyree Plains. That was Paul Klemek talking about the early Polish settlement at Allenton on the Tyree. The small Polish group on the Tyree grew as relatives joined them. Poles continued to emigrate. In the 1930s, with the rise of Nazi Germany, Polish Jews sought refuge with some coming to New Zealand. 734 children, many of them orphans, were offered safety here in the Second World War, and most stayed on. Though housed in the Wairarapa, some came to Dunedin for their education. Over 700 displaced persons arrived between 1949 and 1951, many of whom had been in concentration camps. Then, during the 1980s, under Soviet rule, many more Poles fled their homeland. The Polish community have contributed well to the settlement and development of Otago and continue 
to do so. This is Judy Southworth reporting. It seems that water difficulties have been around much longer than the current Three Waters debate might indicate. Gregor Campbell has been looking at 19th century water problems in the suburb of Mornington. Time was when it was honoured as the residence of small lawyers, small bankers, small squatters and small merchants. It was the Belgravia and Park Lane of Dunedin. There was more blue blood running carelessly up and down its gutterless boulevards than was caught by the fish in his little dish at the memorable death tragedy of poor Cock Robin. Why, there was a sniff and a tang and a snap about the air that was worth the two shillings a week extra rent and a daintiness and refinement and bon ton. I've patented this word for my own use, not to be secured in any other neighbourhood for double the money. Oh, I tell you, Mornington was what? In the language of Mayfair and Brixton, we may distinctly characterise as Tony. Some of its proud inhabitants have been known to speak of the poorer classes, or better still, the working classes, or best of all, the lower classes. It is all very well to smile, but blood tells, as anyone who has any, or who has heard Miss So-and-so and Miss Such-and-such chattering on the high street tramcars will soon learn. Who taught them to clip their English and murder its pronunciation? I do not know. Certainly not their old grandfather, who... God bless him, was a jobbing printer in the early days. Nor their sainted mother, who has been seen when much younger and much happier, skipping light-heartedly to the slaughter yard on the belt and returning with a sheep's head. Jimmy, I think we call it as youngsters, tied up in a handkerchief for the good man's dinner. Ah, they were mad days, and there was more fun and sincerity abroad then than after the new iniquity had planted its hobnailed boots in our midst. The owners of the hobnails, the small bankers who had had trouble and losses at home, poured in. Your rough and tough old merchants, a dying race, and your smart, stern, pushing, straightforward sheep farmers and runholders followed and settled and bought and sold, and hey presto, have now become our gods, O Israel. These are the founders of our aristocracy. These are the folk whose daughters talk of titled relatives at home turn up their dainty, or otherwise, noses at the hard-up ones here, and, thanks to a private school education, three shudders, please, at the mention of the words public school, are able to discuss circles and society and manners in delightful unconsciousness of their ignorance of their simplest elements. One does not know whether to roar or wish to spank them when one sees and hears what one sometimes does see and hear. But to return. At Mornington we had, I can't honestly say have, the creme de la creme of Dunedin's bluest blue blood, and Mornington tried hard to live up to it. Many an economy was practised in the kitchen to make a brave show in the dress circles at the theatre, and many a tradesman was sent empty away until arrangements could be made. To keep the pot on the bubble, we shut our eyes to those wretched commonplaces. We admired the Spartan heroism that once a month maintained a smart afternoon tea and the other 29 days a dirty, sloppity kitchen. We were content to know that Mornington sat for its portrait at least twice every 24 hours, that it was a guide as well as a beacon, and what it had not in roads, gutters, paths, 
sanitation and domestic conveniences it had in social aloofness and class superiority. Hence, when we heard that Mornington had been living without water, that the same borrowed bucketful did for washing the face, bathing the baby, cooking the dinner, scrubbing the floor and making the tea, we were pained. We felt for our neighbours. We knew how Cleopatra and Juliet and Helen and Marianne Jane would feel the shock, though to the dad remindful of the good old times, would obviously be depressing and the thought that the lower classes, that is, the people who lived in the city and used water, would think that they never washed at all, was enough to make them forget their long line of ancestors and use language not far removed from that of the common people. So, Mornington drew itself up, that is, portion of it did, and, regardless of what the rest might think, announced its intention of borrowing £15,000 to lay pipe and secure water. I'm told that as the quantity of soap used depends upon the amount of water consumed, all the wholesale importers of soap intend to vote for the loan. Also, all those residents who have read somewhere of other people who use water every day and won't buy property unless there is water on it may be counted on, and these two, it is thought, should carry the day. But it is a doubtful proposition. Water? What do you want water for? asks the ignorant Mr. Mance, who prefers a democracy without it. Let those who will have it pay for it. The tank is good enough for me, full or empty. In fact, I prefer it empty. Borrowing is easy. And if you haven't got it, you can't use it. Why, it rained last night, didn't it? You had a drink this morning, hadn't you? Water indeed. Give me the good old days of kerosene tins, tussocks, rabbits and drippings. No, sir, I'm opposed to extra taxation. I stand for primitive customs. Keep down the rates, keep on the dirt. I must oppose this absurd proposal to the utmost. Who ever heard of a clean democracy? Next week, the question is to be decided. It will not be put quite in the form I have stated it, but it means the same thing. The only people who are opposed to a constant and sufficient water supply for Mornington are those who, unfortunately, have to look at every improvement from a monetary standpoint. It is to the discredit of the aforementioned society that water was not brought into the borough as it could have been years ago. I question even whether the late drought would have compelled action had it not become clear that people were leaving the district and that property was depreciating in value. There's nothing that quickens a man's conscience so much as a leak in his purse. And I'm the freshly hydrated Gregor Campbell, for Heritage Matters. The Leviathan Hotel is a well-known Dunedin landmark. As it turns out, it has a fascinating history too. This report from Judy Southworth. When the Leviathan Temperance Hotel was built in Dunedin in 1884, it was well-placed beside the harbour, the original railway station, and on land reclaimed from the harbour with rock taken from the flattening of Bell Hill. With 150 rooms, it was reputed to be the largest hotel in Australasia. The name Leviathan originates from the Book of Revelations and is used to describe a huge creature, usually of the sea. At the time, the 1880s, the exchange area of Dunedin was a bustling hub with many fine buildings. The railway station, steamboat landings and tram terminus were close by. The first owner of the Leviathan was George Bodley, who sold it after five years to Mrs. Anstice Silk. 
She had been born in England and emigrated to Australia with her parents in 1857. In 1859, she married George Silk, who emigrated to New Zealand in 1868. Later that year, Anstis followed with her daughters, and they lived in Lawrence, where George mined for gold, and Anstis ran a successful baking and catering business. After George's death in 1887, Anstis moved to Dunedin and took over the Leviathan Hotel in 1889. She kept up the mining interest dredging on the Nevis River. On display at the Leviathan, she put a 2.3 kilo cake of gold recovered from her surprise company mine at Nenthorn, a company she'd purchased in 1891 for £80. A report in the Ashburton Mail in 1890 praised the hotel. People are apt to sneer at temperance hotels, and they have often had cause to do so, for they are frequently comfortless, ill-conducted, miserable affairs which struggle along in a feeble, unsatisfactory way. But everyone who's visited Mrs. Silk's really wonderful hostelry comes away profoundly impressed with the fact that, given proper management, it is perfectly possible to run an hotel on temperance principles with success, with comfort and satisfaction to the guests, and with handsome and remunerative results to the proprietor. The business done at the Leviathan must indeed be seen to be believed. It makes up no less than 300 beds every night, Indeed, very frequently, numbers of persons have to be refused accommodation because the house is full. As many as 800 persons have dined at the Leviathan in one day. The bedrooms are all furnished with spring beds and are scrupulously clean, and a fire escape is provided at almost every window. A very liberal menu is provided at the modest charge of a shilling. And not only are the viands abundant, but an ample variety of the very best quality and excellently prepared for the table, while the staff of neat, active girl waiters attend upon the guests with courtesy and unfailing good nature. Anstis was reputed to rule the Leviathan with an iron hand. All staff had a daily uniform inspection. Apparently it was hard to keep waitresses as no sooner were they trained when they'd leave to marry, often to hotel guests. Under her direction, the hotel prospered. In 1899, Anstis died and the Leviathan Hotel Company was incorporated to run the hotel. The company's shares were held by Otago people throughout the 20th century and in 1999 they were sold to a company owned by the Lang family. During the 1950s, the hotel was extensively modernised, with most of the original ornate exterior removed. The 150 rooms were reduced to 75 by making alternate rooms into an ensuite. More significant changes came in the 1970s. Until 1974, the hotel was dry. There'd been an unsuccessful attempt to get a liquor licence in the 1880s, Subsequent owners were teetotal, and one of the directors of the hotel company said it would be over his dead body that they would sell liquor. It's reputed that he died in October 1974, and the hotel started selling liquor the next day. Also during the 1970s, the adjacent insurance office was purchased and incorporated into the hotel. In the 21st century, the hotel is undergoing further refurbishment and being restored as faithfully as possible to the original. The restoration of the wood panelling around the walls is now complete. 
There's a cabinet that displays early plates, creamers, butter dishes, cutlery and a chamber pot. Finally, a long-term resident of the hotel in earlier times was Samuel Saltzman. We did a story about him some time ago, telling of his extremely generous gifts to humanitarian causes in Otago, among them hospitals, clinics, health camps, a sanatorium, a tuberculosis block at Balclutha and the Dunedin St John Ambulance Building. He also helped many people during the Depression with food and fuel. He died in 1963. Visitors to Dunedin can continue to enjoy this well-placed hotel. This is Judy Southworth reporting. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand. Check out visitheritage.co.nz This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.